The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. John 19. We're going to consider this chapter in a number of parts because this is the chapter in which Jesus embraced the cross, and the cross occurred within this chapter as we move towards the Easter season. Without my doing much manipulating or forcing, the text really presents itself very well for us to come to chapter 20 on Easter morning, and I, I promise you I did not, I, I would say the Lord did that more than I did, and uh, just interesting the way it's working out. John 19, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to the crowd, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. This is God's word true in every possible way. I read that about a century ago in Scotland, there was a Christian conference held in Edinburgh drawing together folks from many backgrounds. It was an important conference, and there were to be a number of addresses by preachers and speakers of the day. The first speaker who was there at the opening morning of the conference was a a well-known orator of the time. I don't think his name would mean anything today, but it was meaningful then. A man who knew how to use words and weave poetry and philosophy and many things together to tickle the ears of people with his speech. And in the course of his address, he came to a, what we call a purple phrase near the end of his address, and he said, Oh, my friends, 
If virtue incarnate would only appear on this earth, all men would be so ravished with the quintessence of her beauty that they would fall down and worship virtue incarnate. Well, people went out from that and were praising the speaker as being a man of great learning and oratory. But that afternoon, the next speaker was a preacher who began, and it was sort of obvious that he perhaps had revised his opening of his message, because the first things that he said was this, my friends, virtue incarnate has already appeared upon the earth, and far from being ravished by him or falling down in adoration of him, men cried out, Away with him! Kill him! That is what we have done with the pure virtue of God visible in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we are drawing closer in our progress through John to the cross itself, which, as I said, occurs in this chapter 19, every detail, every little action, everything that happens has a significance. You could you can almost preach sermons on phrases as you go through here. Uh, you know, you can look at this and say, well, oh, crown of thorns, that doesn't really matter. Well, oh, uh, whipped, he got whipped. I don't know if that matters. Everything matters. Every detail matters. God gave his word in detail, and it's truth in every detail. We are a culture who is very selectively concerned about violence, We're selectively concerned, you certainly know in the past year or so, about all the different incidences, and rightfully so, I don't denounce this at all, of police violence against different people being arrested in different cities, and people rise up outraged with the mistreatment of a prisoner who even dies under beatings or or what appears to be unjust violence. We're a culture who rightfully is concerned about school bullying, and certainly that is something for us to take a concern with. But being a culture with those concerns, isn't it interesting that we can read the beginning of John chapter 19 and almost not flinch? These are just words on a page. They don't seem like much, uh, even though we would say, well, if I was watching that violence in a movie, it would be R-rated if I had to watch it in the more graphic versions, Mel Gibson's version of the flogging of Jesus in movie form, I would never recommend for any child or young person to watch. And yet I think it was probably very true to life in the film he made 10 years ago. Raw violence here enacted against the Son of God. And no voice was raised. Nobody called for a mayor's commission to look into this, or to say, why are law enforcement people allowed to behave like this? What we see happening here in our text now, in this so-called trial of Jesus, was the most innocent man who ever lived on this earth being exhibited as a guilty man, and that was being done so that we, who really are altogether guilty, may be declared innocent. The hymn writer said it. We're going to sing it later in the service. In my place, 
condemned. He stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pull back the curtain and look at this just a little bit today before we come to the Lord's table. I just have two points, and the first one is quite a bit longer than the second. First, from John 19, 1 to 5. I believe this text asks us in these words, Behold the violent, irrational assault of human sin upon Christ. Behold the violent, irrational assault of human sin upon Christ. What we're seeing here is as if a spiritual freight train is colliding with Jesus standing in the middle of the tracks. The Father turned his back eventually on the cross, and that we we more or less mark as the, the deepest, most mysterious, most horrible point when Jesus on the cross had to say, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it starts here. It starts here in the social dimension and the physical body dimension as sin with a capital S, capital I, capital N. The dimension of the fall and Satan and all his conspiring against people of God smashes into Jesus. You see, Pilate, we looked at it last time, was trying to be just. He was trying to say, I don't see a problem here. He's already said once at the end of 18, I find no fault in him at all. He says it again in in the verses I read. I find no fault in him, and he's going to say it again before chapter 19. Three times the high judge says, this man has no fault. You Jewish leaders come accusing him of treason. Sorry, I can't find that fault. They changed tack and tried other charges. He still couldn't find the fault. So it seems that Pilate goes now on a course of appeasement. He thinks to himself, well, look, I've got a problem here. I obviously can't just walk away from it. But we often whip a man before we crucify him. So if we go with that whipping, and that will rough him up a bit, it will satisfy the bloodlust of these people, and it will probably make this Jesus, their so-called king, respect Roman authority. So perhaps I can just do this and be done with it, and these leaders will leave after they see what 20 minutes with my whipmaster imposes on Jesus. I'm told, I've not served in the military, but I'm told by people who have, and particularly people in war, that wartime for a military person is 95% boredom and 5% sheer terror. I think that sounds like a good description if you were in combat. A lot of time you're just sitting around waiting to do something, trying to spend time with your buddies, playing games, talking, perhaps looking for some release for all the pent-up frustration you feel or anger you might feel towards your situation. Pilate's troops were men who had no particular liking for their assignment. Palestine was a hard place to be stationed. It was not luxury duty. It was far frontier duty, far from home, and with an unruly people to be governed, a people that nobody liked actually all that much. So here were men with Jesus turned over to them 
who had plenty of cruelty pent up in them, and they knew how to deal it out. And here was at least an hour's amusement for them in the early morning. And so they were given free reign to show their instinct for cruelty. We believe from what we know of archaeology and things from that day that there in the barracks area, there would have been a post, possibly five feet tall, a thick post fastened sturdily in the ground. At the bottom of that post, there would have been fastened by iron staples two chains, short chains, maybe only a foot or two long, ending in a manacle that would go around the ankles. There would have been two more higher up with a short chain and handcuff-like instruments that would go around the wrists. There might well have been one near the top coming to a wider collar that would go around a prisoner's neck. The standard way of doing things, we're told, is the prisoner was stripped naked and fastened so he was helpless, and then came the soldier with the cat of nine tails. Picture a police billy club, maybe a foot or 18 inches long, and dangling, tied to it, and dangling from it four foot long lengths of leather thong. But that wasn't too much yet. It was what was at the end of the thongs. Pieces of jagged stone or metal or iron and even glass, we're told, would be tied to those thongs securely. And that instrument would be used on the body of that helpless prisoner who could only writhe and cry and scream as he was almost being cut to pieces. People died from scourging. There were people ordered to be executed who died there, didn't even get to a cross. And you have to ask yourself, how in the world, after receiving the standard, which was 40 strokes, would somebody ever get up from there and march through the streets with a 30- or 40-pound wooden beam on his shoulder? No wonder Jesus needed help doing that. A few strokes, a dozen strokes, and your spine and your ribs would be exposed because your skin was shredded. More strokes than your lungs might even be cut into. And I don't have to get more graphic, I don't think, for you to picture the horror of what was done to Jesus just to teach him a lesson, the horror of the cruelty of humanity. Then they brought that crown of thorns. What was that? We've certainly seen pictures or recreations of it. We don't know exactly what the plant was that grew those thorns, but actually Palestine has a number of such plants. It's a dry climate. It's a climate that tends to grow spiky, thorny plants. It wasn't hard to find something to make that crown. Someone said, picture the crown of the Statue of Liberty. You know how the metal projects out in all directions, sort of. Picture that with thorns jammed down upon Jesus' head. That was more about mockery than it was about pain, right? You think you're a king? Well, we'll grab this old frayed purple lieutenant's robe over here and put that on you. Look at the king. Look at the king. Not even able to stand up on his own. Blood running down his face in agony. What a king. Perhaps you think these soldiers were among the worst examples of mankind. Well, they certainly 
you know, didn't shine as citizens of the year, I, I will agree. But I would say to you that I think the intent of the Scripture is not to tell us that these were the worst of all men that could possibly be found. It seems more likely that what God is saying by His Spirit as He described these actual events was, here are mere ordinary representative men. They weren't anything special. They were just ordinary human beings with the same thing stirring in them that stirred in all people. After all, people ganging up on a weaker victim who happens to be different or unable to defend himself has been a staple behavior in locker rooms and fraternity houses and street corner gangs throughout history. I remember an experience a day I'm ashamed of, actually, in junior high school. I was 12 years old, so were those involved. And I watched five or six boys gang up on a weaker boy who had characteristics they wanted to mock and berate. And he was punched and he was kicked and he was pushed around and I saw it from 20 feet away and I didn't get involved. I didn't participate but I didn't get involved. Twelve-year-olds know how to do this just as well as Roman soldiers. Men are probably more overtly violent in their behavior typically than women, but ladies, I'm sorry, you can't be let off the hook. I think the Bible is saying here is natural human inclinations coming out and beating up on the Son of God. For there are many places where the Scripture describes, I could give you dozens of verses that talk about what our inner nature is since we are all fallen in sin from the Garden of Eden onward. Jeremiah 17 is diagnosing men and women throughout the ages when it says, the heart, the inner person is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Not just Roman soldiers. The book of Romans 3, 13, Paul writes there of lost human beings in general. He says, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are all their ways. You can find many more descriptions of the human beast, if you will, coming out that was the person that Jesus met here as this irrational, violent assault of sin came upon him. He was heading to a cross to die as the Lamb of God, the atonement once for all for sin. So you see, it was essential that he meet sin. He had no sin. He was not a sinner. Scripture insists on that time after time. He even challenged it himself during his ministry and said, which of you accuses me of sin? And everyone was silent. Nobody said, oh, I saw you looking at a dirty magazine. No. They had nothing to say because he had no sin. But he had now to see sin fall upon him like an avalanche and almost bury him, wreaking its havoc on him like a tornado, a black funnel cloud coming across the landscape, making devastation everywhere it goes and sweeping Jesus up in its destruction as his skin was stripped off him And his dignity was sacrificed there in that soldier's courtyard. Well, after they were done, 
Pilate brought him out to the crowd, the crowd that had been shouting, kill him, kill him. And he thought, well, now they'll be satisfied. I I think Pilate really thought he had accomplished what he wanted to do, and and he could turn the tide here. So he brought him out and, and spoke to him. The Latin is given in the other Gospels. Ecce homo, behold the man. What do you think he was saying, behold the man? I think he was saying, he's no real king. Just look at him. Does he look like a king? He looks powerless. He looks harmless. He looks ridiculous. He's saying, I have reduced your so-called king to a squashed bug. How much do you respect him now that the might of Rome has been exercised upon him? And he was also saying, without saying it, hasn't he been punished enough? Do you really want me to do something more? In this degraded bodily condition, Jesus Christ, you see, modeled, he modeled the most extreme example of what sin does to every person that it touches. It destroys people. It degrades people. It shames people. It defaces the image of God in people. Sin robs our humanity of the glory that God designed us to bear. Jesus had never had this happen to him before. Now it has to happen as he becomes sin. You see, he wasn't sinning, but he's becoming sin as sin overtakes him and fills him and almost sweeps him away. And the sight of him covered in blood and gore there ought to say to us, there ought to be a horror. We ought to draw back. I watch that Gibson movie every once in a while. It's a horrible movie, and it is an adult-only movie. But I have watched it just because the horror of it gives me a kind of worship when I see what happened to my Savior in my place. And here's what sin does to us, you know. We are creatures of God, created in His image, able to communicate with Him, able to praise His name, able to experience love and grace and compassion and so many good things. But what does sin do to us? Well, think of it. What does lust do when it overtakes us and makes us its slave? What does theft do when we decide, well, we can pilfer a little money here and there from the company cash box and nobody will know about it? What does adultery do when it's indulged here and there? Or pornography? You know the sense, the emptiness, and you say, I shouldn't be doing this. I don't really want to do this. I'm really not getting satisfaction from this, but I'm going to do it. What does alcohol do when it becomes your slave master? So many things disfigure us, make us less than what God wanted us to be until we are corrupted and the whole character of our lives can appear as moral lepers to other people if they could really see us. What sin did to Christ here is what it does to us from birth onward. Think of it, if the greatest work of art, maybe Michelangelo's Statue of David or the Mona Lisa, let's say, for Leonardo, if one of those great works of art were worth we can't even assign a dollar value to what the Mona Lisa. I don't know what an art 
critic would say, my goodness, you're probably talking about a billion dollars for a painting. And what if somebody could dive through the electronic protection devices in the Louvre Museum in Paris and rip the Mona Lisa to shreds and then pour acid on the shreds? You'd say, oh, oh, horrors! The world's greatest painting destroyed. Well, that's what sin does to human beings, and that's what it was doing now to the master prototype of all human beings, Jesus Christ. That's some of what Pilate meant when he came out and said, behold the man, look at him. He might have been saying, behold humanity. Behold what what has happened to all of you. Look at this. Do you comprehend it? What this violence and irrational behavior of sin has done. Well, I have a second point, and it's quite a bit shorter. It arises from John 19, 8. Verses 7 and 8 are interesting. As Pilate came out and made this declaration, and he thought he was going to get, okay, let's dismiss him. You've done enough. But no, he got crucify him again. But let's read here. The Jews answered, we have a law, and according to the law, he ought to die. Now they've got a new charge because he made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know Pilate was afraid. Why would the procurator of Palestine be afraid of anything? He was the most powerful guy around. He had an army that he could command. He had the authority of Caesar behind him. Why would he be afraid? And what was he afraid of? The text doesn't really specify that as such. But I believe he was afraid of God. Because it was that phrase, the Son of God, that made him more afraid. And so in this second point, I say to you, behold mankind's deep fear of live contact with God most high. I would try to prove my point to you one way by an illustration that you might think is often a tangent. Did you ever think about the fact that if we can have some computer measurement of the most, uh, of, the, of the number of utterances of the name of God or the name of Jesus Christ in all of America, in all human speech, now we're talking about you know, how many million people are there in America, in a single day, in what setting would the speech uh, of the name of God or Jesus Christ be most often spoken? You would think, oh, church, of course. Nope. I don't know where you live. I live in a pretty sheltered environment working as a pastor, and people even apologize when they let things slip in my presence. Never quite figured that one out myself because I know all the words. But you all know who work in certain quadrants of the world that you live in speech assaulting the name of God and the name of Christ left and right and center all the time, and it is not spoken in worship. It's spoken in profane cursing. I used to be puzzled over this. I would think, okay, I understand the fact that there are atheistic, agnostic people who don't worship. They're not perhaps Christians. They don't like God. But, and I could understand that they would have a vocabulary that would express anger or something. But why bring God into it if you don't even care about him. 
Why is it that God has to be spoken every other word of a curse? Well, actually, I think that this text right here explains it. Because those who are apart from God quite often deeply fear God. And you curse what you fear. Pilate was afraid. His superstitions, the mythologies of Rome were such that they actually, they were pretty secular people, but they also had a lot of myths of their own about their gods and so on. And they feared the idea that maybe the gods really do somehow have contact with this world. And when somebody comes and says, he's the son of God, no wonder Pilate goes back in and says to Jesus, he's not asking his home address when he says, where are you from? He's saying, do you come from the divine heavenly realm? Who are you? He's afraid that he might even be involved with God here. Well, as I bring this to a close today, I take you to another verse that we haven't read yet, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Interestingly, I saw in a commentary where a a theologian said that he would nominate 2 Corinthians 5.21 as, this is his quote, the most terrifying verse in all the Bible. You ought to note 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says in our ESV version, For our sake God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be or become or be regarded as sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What's terrifying about that? Well, if you don't have Jesus Christ having become sin for you, you have no possible way of being regarded as the righteousness of God. Can you see that here in the hall of Pilate with the crown of thorns and the lacerated body and back, we have a Savior, not a victim, not an unfortunate person, a Savior taking upon himself the full train wreck of your sin. I'm not going to start pointing fingers. Maybe I'd I'd have to start in the front row if I did. No, I'd have to start right here. The train wreck of my sin, the train wreck of our elders' sin, the train wreck of yours and yours and yours and yours, and I'm not pointing at anyone in particular. Jesus taking on him the ruination, the degrading shame of our sin. It's just as the Scripture predicted, Isaiah 52. His appearance would be so marred, so defaced beyond human resemblance, Isaiah said, hundreds of years before. Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for what? Our transgressions, not his. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. It was all for us. We brought all that devastation down upon him. So then Pilate turned to this crowd and said, I need a verdict. I'm too much of a coward to... Oh, no, he didn't say that, but he should have. I'm too much of a coward to make a verdict, so you make one for me, crowd. Who shall I give to be 
free? Jesus, the king of the Jews, or Barabbas, the terrorist? You know how we feel about terrorists. Boy, we keep them in Guantanamo Bay, even though Cuba wants us to kick everybody out and clean the place out. We're still keeping Guantanamo Bay and keeping those extreme terrorists locked up, right? We aren't going to let those people out. What did the crowd say? We take the terrorist. We don't care if he throws hand grenades in the market. We want a terrorist. Jesus must be more dangerous than him. But the question comes down to ask, who have you chosen? I heard from a friend years ago who attended a passion play. That's a play, a drama set, of course, about the the trial and death of Christ. And he told about an effective device the director did because they were at this climax scene with the scribes and Pharisees when they had about 40 or 50 of their people on the stage shouting, crucify, crucify. And then as Pilate went on further, without your really noticing it in the audience, my friend said, those people, some of them sort of drifted off and went down the side aisles. You thought maybe they were making an exit. But what they were doing in the dark theater was finding vacant seats and seating themselves among the audience. So when it came up again and the people on stage started saying, crucify, everybody in the audience jumped out of their seat because somebody three seats over or two rows behind was shouting. And my friend said, it was like the whole audience was shouting and I almost felt like I should do it. But isn't that exactly what the director was trying to make a point? We put him there. We put him on the cross. Behold the man, Christ Jesus, loaded down with the burdens and the debts and the obligations and the shame of my sin so I could go free. So you could face the great God and be unashamed and be free for eternity. So what do you choose? Who do you choose? Choose Jesus Christ. Every other choice is absolutely destructive and death-bringing in its consequences. Our Father, we were in that crowd. If Jesus had the consequences of those Jewish scribes and Pharisees upon him, no less so does he have the consequences of my sin. It wasn't the Jewish race that killed Jesus. It was sin. Sin by Gentiles, sin by Americans, sin by Asians, sin by Africans, South Americans, Eskimos, every human being, sin before you. As horrifying as it is to see what was done to him, as we come to his table today, let us come with gratitude and praise for him who took the train wreck of sin and carried it away with him. We pray in his name. Amen.